Welcome to the Human and Technology Podcast. This podcast is for anyone who develops, distributes or uses technology. For all those who always have the feeling that technology overwhelms or dominates them. For everyone who wants to know how to deal with technology in everyday life. For anyone who wants to understand what technology does to us and how we can get our lives back. This podcast is for those who want to make technology sexy. All the product developers, designers, UX, UI professionals, product managers, CTOs and CEOs. And it is for you. My name is Dr. Peter Reska. My friends call me Dr. Peter. I am your host and I am happy that you are here. Welcome to the second part of the episode on usability testing here in the Human Technology Podcast. If you have not heard the last episode, the, the first one, the first part, please go back and listen to that one first, then return here and listen to this second part. Let's move on to the field study. The field study means that you create a more or less controlled situation outside a lab. That you say, okay, um, you do not use a driving simulator, but you use a car. You equip a car with all the measurement equipment that you have, and then you have people driving on official roads, on public roads, or on a test track, and they do things for you. And in this situation, you have a partial control over the environment, particularly on a test track. You can say, okay, now we have a right curve, a left curve, and then you may have a traffic signs installed there. You may have a traffic light installed there. And um, yeah, but, but again, you do not have full control over the environment. It may be a rainy day. It may be a sunny day. It may be more early in the morning. It may be an early evening. So you cannot really control the environment. And it's even, let's say, worse, or this, this problem is even, even stronger when you go out on real roads. There may be a traffic light that is red for one participant and the same traffic light is green for another one. There may be a car in front of you for one participant and there may be no car in front for another participant. So you have only partial control over the uh, an environment. It still remains an artificial situation. Participants still know, all right, there is somebody watching me. There is, um, I'm, I'm here, the one that needs to perform. I need to do things. Um, I'm, I'm measured. Um, I have these um, heart rate measurement equipment attached. Uh, maybe I have an eye movement, a uh, set of eye movement glasses uh, on. And now they're, they're, they're testing me and now they're, they're, they're collecting data on me and, and they're making movies uh, about things that I'm doing. And yeah, it's still this, this artificial situation that you have. But users behave more naturally in this than in laboratory studies. And you have a more natural environment. So it's, it's not that artificial anymore. 
And you can still collect comparable data um, because you maybe use all the same test track at all the times. And you always start at uh, 2 p.m. With, with, a, with, a, with a data collection. So you always have the same time of day. So there is a certain comparability uh, in the data that you have. The problem remains, it's still an artificial situation and it's still the fact that users are forced to perform activities they may not perform in, in real life. To get back to the example, so if, if you drive on, on a highway, it's a real highway, and they're driving 80 miles per hour there, then you and then you ask them, hey, please make a phone call, please dial number 12345 on, on the smartphone, you force them into actions they, they maybe would never do in, in real life. And again, this, this may distort your data and, and you may get serious problems out of this. But the field study is very often a good compromise between the lab study and the third kind of study I want to talk about, which is um, what I call the ethnographic study. This is the observation of users in the field. A very good example for this one is ticket machines on, on train stations. It's, very good, uh, it's a very good situation um, where you can describe a lot on this one. So you have a minimally controlled environment. You just stand there and wait until someone comes and buys a ticket on this ticket vending machine. So it's a very natural situation. Users very often do not realize or should not realize that they are watched, that they are observed with this one. And uh, you have, um, naturally, you have, have very little control over the whole situation. You have minimal control over the environment. I mean, if you stand there for a whole day and no one shows up, you cannot collect data. Um, and you don't know what kind of ticket they will get. Is it is it a, a public transport ticket? Is it a long-term train ticket? Is it a, um, let's say, standard ticket? Or do they need to do additional activities? So you just don't know it, what they do, what they plan. Or maybe they, they even buy the wrong ticket and you just don't know it. Somebody shows up and wants to buy a public transport uh, uh, bus ticket, but instead uh, he or she buys a long-term train ticket. Um, so this 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 is um, a big problem that you have, and and uh, the the data collection is very difficult. I mean, you cannot measure heart rates, for example. You cannot measure eye movements in the situation. You can, for example, um, uh, measure the time. So okay, this person needed ninety three seconds to get his or her ticket, and another one needed one hundred and twenty. But maybe um, the the first person had a very easy task just getting a bus ticket and the other one had a long haul train ticket uh, where for a person with special needs um, that uh, is valid for the next three weeks which is a very complex thing and maybe these 120 seconds are very good uh, they indicate a very good thing and the 93 seconds seconds for the short uh, term for the public bus uh, ticket is a very bad result but you will never know this you will never get about this one but users behave naturally and uh, you, can, you can just find out where the problems are. Maybe you can approach these persons afterwards and ask them a couple of things. But that, and that is a big, big problem, uh, infringes the privacy of 
your, let's say, participants. Most of them will be pretty irritated if, 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 if they get a ticket out of a ticket vending machine. And then after that, you say, um, hey, sorry, I am from this and this company and I'm running a usability study and I watched you. It took you 95 seconds to get this ticket out. Can you tell me what you did? And, and many people will be totally irritated on this one. And it's their right to be irritated about this one because none of us is a, a rabbit in a cage or a rat in a lab um, that you can watch the way you want to. So that's a big problem. And another problem is these ethnographic studies are only possible with existing systems. You cannot test a prototype in this one or a paper and pencil prototype or a very early stage of your software development that uh, you can only use systems that are out there in the market. But the natural environment and the idea um, of just letting people do what they want to do instead of pressing them into an artificial situation is um, a very interesting one. I often do these ethnographic things. I mean, I'm always doing that. Um, I have my HMI brain, my usability user experience brain running all the time. So whenever I see people interacting with technology, I'm watching them in a way in the car next to me in these ticket machines or vending machine situation. And I cannot stop it. You know, it, it, is, it is part of my, my personality. And so, so I do this very often in early stages of projects or I get um, inspirations of, hey, this could be an interesting thing because he or she had this. And it seems like he or she had this problem. So I need to set up a lab study and really test this. So it is your decision on what kind of study you do. But um, you have this lab study versus field study versus ethnographic study. They all are good. They all have their advantages. They all have their disadvantages. Select carefully. One point, which is always a big point on discussion, is the sample size. The natural idea of many, many people is, hey, let's take as many as we can. 1,000 or 500. Particularly people from marketing, they tend to run for huge sample sizes. If you run a usability study and you will have 1,000 participants, it will take you something like forever to collect the data, which is definitely not what you want to have. And a usability study is not a marketing market, market analysis. It is a usability. It's something different. So my view on sample sizes. Five participants are okay particularly for quick and dirty usability tests and you can discover the the biggest bugs with that it is you can run it within a day if you do not have too much equipment uh, it is quick it is cheap uh, a little dirty but if you particularly if you're in early stages um, you ask five people and say hey what do you think what is it please do this for me and um, then with five you get there are theories about this, whether this is really right or not, correct or not. You get 80%, 85% of all bugs out of your HMI with these five participants. So it is good if you have quick and immediate ones. Five is okay. If you have 10 to 15 participants, you get more depth in the data. You get more bugs out of this. 
you may be able to run simple statistical analysis. Um, you may be, if, if even it's just an average that you can calculate or a median, um, then that is okay. So you get a little more depth uh, out of 10 to 15. If you run for 15 to 50, you get even more depth and data, you find even more bugs, and you can run statistic analysis. You maybe run an ANOVA or a Shafe test or a t-test. That is possible with the 15 to 50 participants that you have. And um, it's a pretty good number. You can, you can, you can, um, yeah, you can get a lot of information out of this, and you can get results that are a solid ground to stand on for decision making. If you go beyond fifty participants, you get a huge depth in data. Um, you can run all the statistic analysis. Uh, there are basically two reasons uh, why using more than 50 participants. One is if you have a big fragmentation of your sample. Fragmentation means you have men and women, you have old and young, and you have experienced and non-experienced. So you have a lot of different, um, as it is called, cells in your, your uh, design, in your study design, and you fill them equally with 10 persons each. And then if you have young versus old, you already have 20. If you have male versus females, you're at 40. And then if you have experience versus non-experience, you're at 80. That you need to have 10 persons in each cell of your study design. So that is a reason why you may need larger, a larger number of participants. And the other one is if you make decisions that are very costly, that are very important. If you say, all right, um, we now have to make the final decision on an HMI. And if we make a bad HMI, um, we will lose a lot of money. Then uh, a larger number is also good to get more reliability into your data and to run more statistic analysis. From my experience, uh, with all the studies that I did in the past, and it's um, some hundred, I believe, um, 200, 300 maybe, I don't know, it's in, in that area. My experience is 25 is a good number. So 25 is always something to say, okay, I have enough data to make good decisions. I can run a few statistic analysis, but it's not a huge study. It does not take me 10 weeks or six weeks to collect the data. 25 is possible in a week that you collect the data. So it is a good compromise. It's a balance between the efforts to put in and the quality of data you get out of this. All right, let's move on to the next steps. You will remember it's uh, pretty, pretty long ago in this podcast episode that I talked about the six steps of a data collection. And now we have the next step, uh, the six, six steps of a, of a uh, usability study. And now we have the step called data collection. So now you're ready. You have identified your things. You have selected the right kind of studies. You have set up your laboratory. You're all done. And now it gets into the data collection. And there are three levels you can collect data on. One is the behavioral level. That is the level where you watch your users and 
you find out, okay, um, what are they doing? How long does it take? How many mistakes do they do? Where do they leave the optimal path of the interaction? So that, that's the behavioral level. Then you have the subjective level, which is how do my participants feel? How do they reflect what they do? What is the, the feeling, the emotion that they have while interacting with a technology? And the third level is the physiological level. How do their bodies react? Heart rates and heart rate variability and so on. This, this is the physiological level that you have. And I will run through all of them um, in the next minutes so that you know what kind of measurements they have and what their, um, what their pros and cons are. Let's start with the behavioral level. That is observing the behavior of the participants. And the classical one here is the time to solve the task. You have a comparative study, you have three different HMIs, you have diff three different cars, and you say, all right, uh, please type in or please activate uh, the destination uh, Berlin-Brandenburg gate. And then you say, okay, in car A, that takes 15 seconds, and car B takes 23 seconds, and in car C, it takes uh, 18 seconds in average, or for this one particular person. However, you have the time to solve the task. That's an obvious, easy one and an easy to communicate. Another one is the success rate. You will usually set a maximum time. Like, for example, programming the Brandenburg Gate into the navigation should not take more than three minutes. And then you find out how many will get it done under three minutes and how many give up. You will have, and I mean, it's easy with any kind of HMI or almost any kind of HMI to run users into or to run participants into a situation where they just give up and say, I don't know how to do this. I have no idea, no clue. And then you have this success rate. And in Germany, we use the, 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 the term failure rate, which is the negative one. And I, I prefer the success rate. How many people succeed in performing this task? And if you have a success rate of 50, 60, 70, 75%, you should seriously think about your HMI. If you have 80, 85, it's okay-ish. If it's above 90, um, you're pretty good already. Then the type and number of problems that people have. Do they, maybe, maybe they do not find a button that they need to press. Or maybe they um, do not scroll a list, although it should be scrolled. Yeah? So you can, you can say, okay, 20% uh, of all participants did not find the start navigation button. They didn't press it. They believed it's already done, and so they did not press this button. That, that is a type of, of accident button not identified. Then you can have a look at the chosen paths or the optimal path method. There is usually an optimal path to fulfill a task in a system. Uh, you may step one and then step two, three, four, five, six, and then you're done. And maybe all of your participants make one, two, and three good, and then at four, 50% just take the wrong path. They go the wrong way. 
then you know that number four, there must be a problem that you have. You have identified a, a point in the interaction process where there seems to be an issue. Then you can run the error analysis, try to find out, okay, what kind of error did they do? Um, not finalizing the task, not finding a button, uh, misunderstanding of the wording that they do. So all this is, is possible. You can run an eye movement analysis. I have done this a couple of times. It is pretty much of an effort. I mean, today, not that much anymore as it used to be 20, 25 years ago. When I did my first eye movement studies there, it was a huge and enormous amount of effort with tons of equipment and calibration and stuff. But uh, th that, is, that is not that bad anymore. It is a nicely usable study. It still produces a lot of data. And um, if you have questions where eye movements are useful, go for it. Um, for example, if a user in a certain interaction uh, situation always looks at the upper right corner of a screen, but uh, the button that is required to be pressed is on the lower right end, you know that you have the wrong position for the button. So, very simple example of uh, what you do with eye movement data. And then what I have invented in all of my study is an experimental rating. Uh, the, the leader of a study gives a rating. So maybe you say, okay, from one, very bad, to 10, absolutely perfect, you give a rating. You watch these guys and girls interacting with the technology, and you as an expert, um, you give them this rating. And this seems to be pretty rough, tough, uh, quick and dirty, which it is, but I found out it's pretty reliable. It's, it's pretty good, and uh, we made tests and uh, asked three, four, five different uh, uh, experimenters uh, to give a rating, and they're pretty close together. So it, it seems to be a pretty valid uh, method to get an additional piece of information in this data collection procedure. All right, so far on the behavioral level, that is watching, recording, collecting data on the behavior of your participants. The second one is the subjective or the emotional level that you have there. If humans interact with technology, when they interact with technology, they develop an opinion on this one. They develop um, a position on this one. They may even have a, an emotion on this one. And so... You can ask them for this. And there are standardized testing procedures out there. There are standardized questionnaires out there. For example, the system usability scale, which is a very good one. It is pretty old. It is very well tested. It's extremely valid. It's uh, very fast. It has 10 uh, statements, and then you have to indicate how much you agree with the statement or not on, I think it's a five or seven point Likert scale. Very easy, very straightforward, very good. Um, MeQ, Attractive, QUIS, all these are these standardized test procedures, these standardized questionnaires. They are very good, and I always recommend to use at least one of these in my study because they're validated. Um, there, have been, there has been a lot of scientific research on this, 
There have been many, many different studies. There is a big corpus on research on this one. All uh, really, really, really nice and all really um, good. The problem is these questionnaires are not really specific. They, particularly the system usability scale, is extremely generic. You know where you stand, you find this out, but you don't know why. It is not domain-specific, so it doesn't take into account, am I in a car, or do I have a website, or do I have a smartphone app? So they have this advantage of being very stable and, and very well tested and validated, but they are not at all, and most of them are not very, very specific. Then we have this collection of questions. And a collection of questions is not a questionnaire. So a questionnaire requires a lot of developmental work. And you can do this. Um, it's a lot of effort. You can put this, and I have done this a couple of times in my professional life, developing a good questionnaire for a specific application area. There will always be the point in time when somebody comes to you as a test leader saying, hey, I have a couple of questions here. We, we need to ask the participants these questions. And you can do this. You can, you can um, yeah, go out there and, and make them, but be very careful. They may be not neutral. They may be distorting questions. They may be disturbing questions. And they may be infringing questions. Um, so, so make a check on this one and, and add this one, but no, do not rely only on these collections of questions because it's not anyhow tested. Another one to get information on the subjective or emotional level is thinking out loud. The, if, if, you, if you ask your participants, um, all right, if you solve the task, please tell me what you think. Most people are, can do this. And they will go like, hmm, all right, I need to type in the destination Brandenburg Gate here. Uh, there's a button destination. I'm going to press this. Ooh, here it says address. I don't know the address. Maybe uh, here it says points of interest. Maybe points of interest is the right one to select. Right? Okay, so this is what's happening in this thinking out loud. It is a bit infringing. It is a bit disturbing. It is a bit distor distorting the data. But it's a very good, um, it gives you a very good impression on what people really think, what their decision-making processes is. And um, yeah, it's a good, good uh, way of collecting uh, data on the subjective level. And in the end, there is interviews. I run them always in any study um, at the end of an interview, basically for good Two, two good reasons that I have. One is, if you do not ask for anything in your questionnaires, if you do not ask for anything in the standardized test procedures, you will never find out that you have an issue. The, in the interview, it may come up that they say, oh, ah, by the way, um, there was one thing I really didn't like about this HMI. And then you say, okay, I learned a lot with this one single sentence that somebody says. It seems, and if, if uh, let's say, two or three out of 25 say this, it is worth having a closer look at that particular issue. There may be something behind it. And so that, that is the one reason you get very often answers on questions you did not ask. And so in these interviews, I usually start with, how did you like it? Or if I have a comparative study, which of these three did you like most? And why? Why is always a good question in, in these interviews. And then people start talking. 
And beyond that, I find it's a matter of uh, politeness, of giving the participants the chance to talk about what they have experienced, to give additional pieces of information, to add support. And the motivation is uh, that I say, okay, now you have the chance, and this is one of the questions you can ask, now you have the chance to tell the developer of this system your opinion. We're interested in your opinion, please tell us. Um, so it's you, you value your participants if you have at least a short interview at the end of your test. All right, so behavioral level, emotional level, and now we move on to the physiological level. And there you measure things like heart rates, like heart rate variability, blood pressure, skin conductance, muscle tension, body temperature, um, for for most of this, you have attached something to the users, or for I think almost any physiological uh, level, you need a measurement. You need to attach something, either a blood pressure uh, measurement uh, equipment or a smart watch or electrodes. You have to attach something to the bodies of your of your participants, which makes it, by the way, pretty uh, pretty high effort out of this. You can measure the pupil diameter, which I did in my diploma thesis and my PhD thesis, where I used the pupil diameter to measure human mental workload. Um, pretty, pretty. That's 25 years ago. It was a pretty big thing to do this. Uh, I think today with the modern eye movement equipment, uh, eye movement measurement equipment, it's pretty easy to measure the pupil diameter. It's also physiological data. You can also measure saccadic and lit closure, speed of your eyes, of your eyeballs. All this is physiological measurements. You can do this in a usability study. As I already touched it, it may be a lot of effort to measure this data. You have to get pretty close to your participants. Yeah, you have to say, okay, if I want to measure your EKG, please take off your T-shirt, which uh, in some situations is not the thing you want to do. But um, uh, the uh, uh, if if you have the feeling that it's worth the effort, then do it. But make it make a good analysis upfront. Is it worth the effort? If no, drop it. Drop the physiological level. Uh, use the the emotional, the subjective level. And the behavioral level, and uh, a drop physiological. But if you if you have the feeling, yes, I get real important information for this user group, for this task, for this equipment, for the context I'm testing in, then do it. All right. So those were the first three steps of um, how to run a study. Now we have three ones open, and uh, we are pretty pretty. Uh, advanced in, in the time of this podcast, but um, the three last ones are pretty short. So we can run through them in a very short time frame. It's data analysis, reporting, and learnings. For data analysis, um, you need to apply the appropriate statistical methods. That depends on your sample size, on the kind of data you collected, on the confounding variables, on the data distribution, that you have. So there's various things. And there are experts out there. And I'm not an expert in statistical analysis. I have done quite a few. 
and I know the weak points, but if I run a, an important study with a large sample, a lot of data, with a lot of important decision-making afterwards, I approach an expert in data analysis, a statistical expert, discuss the things with that and select the right methods of data analysis. Once you have done this, you will probably uh, compile a report for your client, for your bosses, for the decision makers. You will do this. And in this report, you put down your methods, the measurement methods. Did you apply a lab study or a field study or an ethnographic study? What measurement methods did you do? What sample did you have? Who were your participants? How did you recruit them? How do you select them? What tasks do you give? What are your results? What did you get out of this one? You discuss the results and you write about the open research questions. What's next? What questions are not answered with the studies? What new questions popped up during the study? So all this is part of a good report on a usability study. And then the learnings. You do a debriefing. Um, if you do it alone, you do it with yourself alone. If you have a team, you do it in the team. And you discuss what went well, what can we keep, what did not work, uh, what shall we change in the next study so that you improve yourself, your abilities, your competence in running a study, study by study, step by step um, by doing this one. And one thing that I always recommend and I always do is if you make video recordings and you usually make all these video recordings to have a, a document to document your results, make a highlight video or it's more like a low light video. If persons have a problem, use this one and make, make this video of big problems users have and, and show this to the decision makers, show this to the developers. You can come up with a very seriously written report with very well done data collection and data analysis. There will still be people saying, hey, come on, this cannot be true. Uh, there, there's a buck in your measurements. And, and I cannot believe that problems ha that people have problems in this certain situation. And then you show them a video. Somebody sitting in front of a screen and not pressing the right button, although it is right in the middle of the screen. Uh, and, and, and you see them sitting there, sweating, getting more and more nervous. Then you will convince everyone that there is a serious problem at this HMI. All right. I promised you in the beginning, I will give you tips and tricks on how to run a good usability study. And it's five. It's five tips and tricks you get from me to improve your usability study to a higher level. Number one, don't fragment samples too much. It's very easy to say, okay, we want to have men and women equally. The question is why? Is there any hypothesis about this one? Do you have a good reason why there may be a difference between male and female? Then do it. If not, don't do it. So I, in, in all the studies I have run in the past, I have never had the situation that there was a significant difference between men and women. 
There were significant differences between experienced and unexperienced users, between old and young users, between different cultures. Uh, all this true, but men and women usually is not a big differentiator. So if you go out and say, um, you have fragmented by age, by experience, by usage of cars, by car ownership, by whatever, then you may end up by searching five women uh, older than 80 that have big experience in Apple products and drive Mercedes cars. And I can tell you from my experience, it will be pretty hard to find these participants. So don't fragment too much. Fragment if you have a good reason for it. But if you do not have a real good reason, just don't do it. Put them together. Number two, limit a usability study to 90 minutes. Your participants will get tired. They will get out. They will lose their focus after latest 90 minutes. You as well, but this doesn't care. Yeah, but 90 minutes is something you should not go beyond. And if you need to um, need a longer time for whatever, try to split your sample, try to re-invite people. But after 90 minutes, people get fuzzy. Um, they, they lose their focus, their concentration, and your data quality just gets poorer. And so to keep your quality up, your data quality up, limit it. Number three, as I said, it is always possible to run users into dead ends in an HMI to make them really, really desperate uh, about what is, uh, that nothing is possible, that they have to give up. So if you give an, 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 a hard task, a hard to solve task, give them an easy one afterwards. One where you know, okay, this, this will be easy to do so that they get refocused, um, that they get their confidence back so that they get back into believing into their self and saying, okay, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm not the guy that, that blows up everything here because I can't solve this task. Participants have these feelings and, and uh, by giving them a, a, an easy task every now and then, um, it, 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 is, it, is, uh, it brings, brings them back into, into the loop. Number four. Make study plans that are experimenter-friendly, that are study-leader-friendly. Running a usability study is an exhausting exercise. And for myself, if I have these 90-minute slots, um, I need at least 10 minutes in between two um, participants to recharge myself, have a coffee, go to the bathroom, and then um, not more than three of them, um, then you can still... Re, 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 recalibrate your equipment, collect the data, copy data to a hard drive, so whatever is required and all this. But uh, don't run more than three of them per day. And then after three or four days, have a day off. Because, as I said, running these studies is an extremely exhausting exercise. And protect yourself. Um, you will be better. You will get better data quality. You will get better results if you take care of yourself. And finally, number five, clients, customers, bosses shall stay out of the lab. Involve them, as I said earlier, into the dry runs, into the test runs. They have the right to know what's going on there, but do not let them into the lab. 
They may watch the camera picture in some separate room. But if they get a direct contact with the participants, they will always distort the data. Just like, hey, isn't that cool? Hey, we, we have put a lot of effort into this and, and you will find this really good. And this is not what we want. They will put pressure on the participants. They will put pressure on you. So keep them out while you do the data collection. All right, we are coming to an end here. Let's summarize this episode on usability testing, usability studies on how to run a UX UI study. So we have these six steps um, that you run through identification, preparation, data collection, data analysis, reporting and learnings. Those are the th six steps you will run through. We have three types of studies, laboratory studies, field studies, and ethnographic studies. All of them have advantages. All of them have disadvantages. You will apply maybe a laboratory study earlier or an ethnographic study for the kickoff, maybe a field study at the very end. So you will have to balance this one. There are three levels of data collection, behavioral level, emotional or subjective level, and the physiological level. Again, all of them have pros and cons, and you will apply a mix of very well-selective procedures. And we have these five tips and tricks. Don't fragment samples too much. Maximum duration, 90 minutes. Easy tasks after difficult tasks. Make a study plan, uh, test leader-friendly, and get your clients, bosses, and so on out of the laboratory. If you think about running a study, a usability study, and you're not really sure whether you know exactly what to do, give me a call. Let's talk about this one. Um, I can support you in any of these aspects. That's it for today. Thank you for spending time with me. I hope you were able to take something with you and do something for yourself that will be forever. For an unknown exchange, you will find me on LinkedIn and on my websites, peter-rusker.com and beyond-hmi.de. Write me an email on the podcast at beyond-hmi.de. Tune in next time. Take care and stay healthy.